Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with 2012 nearly behind us, we decided we'd do something we've never done before. You know, usually we go from week to week bringing you a fresh batch of stories each and every time, right? And if they're about some ongoing issue, then we'll circle back to them later and bring you an update. But never before have we devoted an entire hour to this kind of circling back. So as 2013 knocks on all of our doors, today we've taken a handful of Metro Connection stories from the past year or two and checked back in with the people involved to bring you a sort of second act. That's why we're calling this week's show Follow-Ups. We'll follow up with local kids struggling with obesity. Every day I do a checklist of every fruit and vegetable I have and I have to get at least five servings, but I usually get a lot, lot more. We'll continue the ongoing saga of stink bugs. This thing is really going to put a big chapter in my book of life. I've never had anything affect me like this. And we'll spend some more time with the McNeil family. You may remember how Matt McNeil wrote a book inspired by his two kids who were diagnosed with a terminal degenerative disease. At the end of the book, when I allowed myself to write a happy ending, I think that's when I started to realize that the book could be useful to us to try to get to it in real life. First, though, in February 2011, we introduced you to Marquita Lister, a D.C.-born opera star who's graced stages around the world. She's sung the role of Bess in Porgy and Bess more than 500 times. She's recorded numerous CDs. But in 2006, not long after she turned 42 years old, the curtain nearly fell on all of it. Here's how she told the story last year on Metro Connection. I was up for Salome at La Scala, and I noticed that my hands started hurting. And shortly after that, I noticed I was having a hard time walking, a hard time moving my arms, and a hard time breathing. Marquita was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder called polymyositis. I was in total organ failure, and I was really on the brink of death. After numerous treatments and therapies at D.C.'s National Rehabilitation Hospital, Marquita eventually began to do what was once thought impossible. She began to sing again. I met up with Marquita again earlier this month at NRH. After delivering holiday gifts to her doctors and nurses, she treated patients in the cafeteria to a little concert. Her rheumatologist, Dr. Robert Bunning, accompanied her on piano. Turns out that since last we spoke, Marquita's been one busy soprano. She's had some relapses, some weight gain, some discomfort and pain, but every time she'd get into what she calls a Marquita moment, where she'd look at herself and say, yuck, almost immediately something wonderful would happen. 
I would get a phone call saying, oh, hi, Marquita, we're honoring you with the blah, 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 blah award. Like the Gala Victory Award, which NRH presents for overcoming physical adversity. Or I'm putting together a concert and I'd like for you to come and sing blah, 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 blah. Like the 2012 Philadelphia concert to benefit the National Association of Negro Musicians. Or I was thinking about doing an interview. This is Rebecca Shear. <laughs> would you like to come and, and blah, 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 blah. Well, that one's pretty self-explanatory. Every single time, which to me is a confirmation that through all of the fire that we walk through, there is the cooling water at the end. And her rheumatologist, Dr. Robert Bunning, the piano player, says Marquita showed hints of this belief and determination from her first day at the hospital. I read about a woman who was seriously ill, and I was concerned about if she would be healthy enough to be in our hospital. And when I went in the room, she was studying German. Well, she can barely lift her head off the bed. And that immediately told me that we had a woman who was quite a bit of a fighter. That, again, is why NRH presented Marquita with the Gala Victory Award last year. She joins the likes of Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, and Bob Dole. Opera singer Elvie Powell introduced her at the ceremony. Marquita, tonight we applaud not only your return to the stage as a great soprano, but also your enormous strength and inspiring spirit as we present you with the 25th Anniversary Victory Award. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great honor to introduce Marquita Lister. It was so magical, you know, of all the awards I have received, this one really is the most special for me because I had to work so hard Do you remember what you said in your speech? My speech was one about gratitude. I am grateful for being able to wake up, stand up unassisted, walk around without an apparatus. I live with the gratitude of being able to sing again. I've sung on some of the biggest stages and I've sung in church. To me, it's all the same because it's giving thanks for a gift that I was given. Now when I step onto the stage... It is not about the character I am portraying or the accuracy of the music that I am singing. It is about the grateful heart that I have and the privilege that I have been given to share it. When I sing, my heart soars in exultation. I thank you so much for this marvelous honor. God bless you. Always believe in yourself and know that dreams do come true. And speaking of dreams, Marquita Lister got to live out a big one in August and September of 2011 when she was cast in a new role in Porgy and Bess. At Tanglewood in Lenox, Massachusetts, and then at Symphony Hall in Boston, Marquita portrayed Serena, a pious woman whose husband is brutally killed. Bess is a great acting role. She gets a couple of duets. She gets a reprisal of Summertime. But in terms of just standing flat-footed and just letting your chops show, you know, it's really more Serena that allows you to do that. 
And Marquita says this more grounded role suits her just fine. Because after all, whereas once upon a time she could run across the stage, dash up some steps, and sing a high C before flinging herself into the orchestra pit, well, that girl I don't think exists anymore. So now I can maybe walk across the stage, take my time walking up the steps, sing the high C, and throw myself into the pit. She says her voice has changed too. It's gotten richer, more mature. In a way, after all these years of illness and pain, she says it's gotten even stronger, just like Marquita Lister herself. Last month, we brought you a story about plans to transform Virginia's Lorton Prison into a housing and retail complex. In that story, we met a D.C. man named Kevin Petty, who spent years behind bars at Lorton. I grew up there. You know, I came in uneducated, immature, addicted to everything, and a wreck. We only heard briefly from Petty then, but his account of drug addiction and eventual redemption was definitely worth a second look. Lauren Landau brings us his story. There'll come a time for us. It's Tuesday night, and the amazing gospel souls are practicing at Hughes Memorial United Methodist Church in Northeast D.C. The men shuffle and sway from side to side, their voices and instruments filling the church with flowing harmony. The band members have known each other for years, and they've been through a lot together. Every member is a former inmate of Lorton Prison. Kevin Petty is the president and founder of The Amazing Gospel Souls. He says he always wanted to sing, starting when he was five years old watching performances on The Ed Sullivan Show. And one day I heard a group that was singing in the back alley of our apartment building. And the lead singer name was Barry Gibson. And he was just a cool guy. When he come to the neighborhood, people would call out his name, Barry, Barry, Barry. Kevin started hanging around at rehearsals, and Barry took a liking to the little guy from the neighborhood. He started teaching Kevin how to sing and perform the different dance steps. But Kevin's role models had a secret. They were very talented singers. They were very cool teenagers, but they were also addicts. And people didn't know that. Kevin was a talented singer, but his gift led him to trouble before it brought him salvation. My hero that taught me how to sing actually introduced me to heroin when I was eight years old. One day, Kevin was on his way to school when he paused to see if Barry was in the basement of his apartment building, where his band often practiced. His hero was there, sitting in the dark by the boiler and doing something to his arm. He had to shot himself up, and he was a different Barry. He said, you know what this is? And I said, no. He said, it's doogee. He said, you want to try something? I said, yeah. He said, okay, just wait a minute and I'll fix you something. You can do it just like me. Then we're going to work on some songs. I said, okay. By the time Kevin was nine years old, he was addicted. He says Barry taught him everything, from shooting heroin to sniffing glue in a bag. No one suspected a thing, but it wasn't long before people found out. When Kevin was 10, Barry entrusted him with a whole bag of heroin capsules. He said, listen, I got to go someplace. I need you to hold on for this for me till tomorrow. Don't let nobody see. If you need to use some, just use a little bit of it, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, okay. Ten-year-old Kevin happily accepted the responsibility and stashed the drugs in his pocket. 
but the kid didn't exactly lie low that day. Me and my crew went out, and I, I got this doogie in my pocket. And we went out and stole a car. And we were riding through the streets of Newark, New Jersey. We were going everywhere, and the police get behind us and chase us. The boys crashed the car, cutting their joyride short and sending Kevin to Juvenile Hall. The officers searched Kevin's pockets and were shocked by the contents. But they were even more surprised by the child's admission that he used the drugs. I was going to chase that addiction. I was going to do whatever it took to satisfy my addiction, no matter who got hurt by it or whatever. Kevin chased his addiction all the way to D.C. In 1978, you know, in the height of my addiction, I robbed a guy for his drugs, and in the course of the robbery, I took his life. Kevin was charged with murder and robbery and went to jail for 30 years. He continued to struggle with his addiction from inside the prison walls. He overdosed eight times at Lorton and says it's a miracle he's still alive. Most of the people, including Barry Gibson, that started out the way I started out, are not here today that I know. They didn't make it. But through it all, Kevin never stopped singing. He and a few other inmates even formed an R&B group. One day, a friend asked if they would sing in his gospel band. His singers had quit, and he had a concert coming up. First, we said, go to church. Well, no, we don't do that. We go over in church. God might strike me dead if I walk up in there. But he went and says that performance changed his life. He says God used the people in that church to wake up something inside of him. He saved me for a reason to be a blessing to others, and that's the way I live my life because he helped me realize that my life had purpose, his purpose, and he brought me back. Divine intervention created a miracle. Today, Kevin is a free man, and he still sings with the amazing gospel souls. He says he and the other members try to be more than just a band. Many of the guys are mentors, including Kevin, who has 17 mentees that he calls and checks on every day. It's a big part of Kevin's job at the Salvation Army Harbor Light Center in Northeast, where he works as a counselor and aide, giving guidance to people struggling with addiction. He says the biggest reward is reaching out to people who are down and out, like he once was. You have to trust in God. He never, ever fails. He hasn't failed me yet. I'm Lauren Landau. You can learn more about the amazing gospel souls and about Lost in My Dreams, Kevin Petty's forthcoming ebook about his life, on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, how kids struggling with obesity back in 2011 are faring now. I'm the common person who was raised to never give up. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today's show is all about follow-ups, since we're checking back in with some of the folks we've previously interviewed on Metro Connection, like opera star Marquita Lister and Kevin Petty, a former Lorton inmate who's transformed his life in a big way. Now we'll catch up with several kids we featured a little while back in our five-part series on childhood obesity. Kavitha Cardoza headed first to Olney, Maryland, to bring us the update. 
Hi. Thanks so much for having me again. It's been more than a year since I met Rachel and her family. She's now taller, in the third grade, and much more talkative. Her favorite sport is soccer. It's really fun and you move around a lot. The last time we talked in December 2010, the Friedman family, Rachel, her brother Stephen and her parents Lois and Bob, had been struggling to make changes that would help Rachel lose weight. They drastically changed what they ate, went on long family walks and cut out treats like ice cream. Rachel weighed 98 pounds then, more than twice the size of an average American six-year-old. Lois had to shop online so she could find age-appropriate clothes. She's wearing clothes that an adolescent or a tween would wear, so it's tight or writing on her backside. You don't want your six-year-old in that. Rachel says she now rarely takes sandwiches to school for lunch. It's mostly fruits and vegetables. Like apples and peanut butter or celery and ranch. What about them saying Some stuff Some people to you? sometimes make fun of my lunch, but I just ignore them. Rachel also fills out what's called the 54321 progress chart every day, where she keeps tabs on herself. Every day I do a checklist of every fruit and vegetable I have, and I have to get at least five servings, but I usually get a lot, lot more. It also says you should have at least four glasses of water a day, and I do that, and it says three servings of dairy, and I... I usually get two. The chart calls for no more than two hours of any electronics and at least one hour of physical activity. She gets at least 30 minutes. The checks are added up and she exchanges what she calls sweaty points for a family movie or her favorite, a pedicure. It's a blue background and it's like there's snow on them. What's the other thing that happens just because? You feel good. You're... I feel good and I'm really happy. And? and? Healthy. Yeah. Over the summer, Rachel gained seven pounds. Lois and Bob were devastated. But they think, they hope, they may recently have turned a corner. Just two months ago, we had our first appointment where Rachel lost weight. She lost three pounds and weighs 112. Lois and I were actually in tears. We were so overwhelmed by four years' worth of work finally showing through. The Freedmans have a copay of $250 every month for Rachel's visits to a specialized clinic. Every decision they make has to factor in food and exercise. But they say they'll keep trying because the main goal is Rachel feels good, is happy, and stays healthy. More than 30 miles away in southeast D.C., Sequante Wilkinson and his two little brothers bask in their mother Shaquinta's attention as she makes sure they're all bundled up. Sequante is now 18 and a senior in high school. He says he's lost 15 pounds. I've cut soda out of my diet and candy. I'm not 315 anymore. I'm almost exactly 300 pounds. Sequante now picks the grilled chicken instead of the Big Mac at McDonald's. For a while, he played on the school football team and sometimes walks a mile to school instead of taking the bus. He'd like to lose another 100 pounds and is considering bariatric surgery. When we spoke last, his girlfriend had just broken his heart. She would say stuff like, you're too fat to do this, or she doesn't go with fat people. And the sad thing about it was, when I found out about her cheat, it was on Valentine's Day. Now he says having a girlfriend is what makes him want to lose weight. 
because nowadays girls only care about dudes like that. They don't care about somebody who's nice. Shaquinta says she tries to pick up tips for helping her son, such as correct portion sizes, from TV. She's bought a stationary bike. But she blames herself a lot, saying when he was younger, she didn't let him go outside to play after school because of shootings. Once you shield a child and keep them in the house, what is the child to do but watch TV and eat? Sequante has just moved into a residential program run by his school. His mother says the school limits portion sizes and they have dinner earlier. So she's hoping Sequante may lose weight faster. She says she worries when he gets depressed and tries to keep his spirits up. He's the perfect child for me. We just have to work on it. Sequante and his mother still need help understanding basic information about nutrition and crave practical steps to help him lose weight. He's hopeful. I'm the common person who was raised to never give up. For now, he's taking it one day at a time. I'm Kavita Cardoza. One of the people trying to help kids like Rachel and Sequante is Ali Sosna. We met the D.C.-based chef back in October when she was starting Microgreens, an after-school program to teach middle schoolers how to buy and prepare food on a budget. I saw that a lot of the kids would like fruits and vegetables, but then when they got home, there was a little big disconnect in, in budget restraints. Now that Microgreens is done for the year, Emily Berman headed back to D.C.'s Shaw Middle School to find out how it went. For the last microgreens class of the year, Ali Sosna decided the best way to test what her students had learned was to throw them into a high-stakes culinary competition. There are four stations set up in the cafeteria kitchen at Shaw Middle School, with four students and one teacher at each station. One group is slicing carrots, another butchering a whole chicken, the other searing a chicken breast, and the last portioning off how much of each ingredient goes into one serving of chicken stir-fry. Not the portion you'd order in a restaurant, the amount you can have on food stamps. And then when we get to the bone, we have to break it off, and then it comes off like that. Sweet Siyum is methodically separating a chicken leg from the body. Siyum is a tall, thin eighth grader, and the chef's knife is about as big as her forearm. Yet when she's cutting, she's in complete control. It's been very worth my time. I've learned how to make a lot of green vegetables and how to cut a chicken. I think they've taught me a lot. Elise Krauss supervises the butchers in training. She's also a chef and has been volunteering to help with hands-on instruction. These kids love to chop carrots. We'll fight over who gets to chop the last carrot on the table. And I think that's been really surprising to see how enthusiastic and challenged they are by what's going on. Over at the searing station, four students are gathered around a stovetop full of skillets. Hi, my name is Nakaira, seventh grade. Nakaira's mother, Joy Hicks Parker, is standing a few feet away, proudly watching her daughter check her chicken for proper browning. The signal, it's time to flip. She's more helpful in the kitchen, ideas, and, Mommy, you should do this, and, Mommy, you should do that. They're working together on some new recipes and talking more about food choices. Ali Sosna says that's exactly the outcome she wants. So they're helping out, they're shopping more, and that's the whole point. It's just awareness, cooking awareness. However, Sosna admits this first class was a bit of a reality check when it comes to the attention span of middle schoolers. 
If cell phones were not allowed in school, that would be huge for us. The class size will also go down from 16 to 12 kids. Micro Green's next round of classes will be in March and April, and Sasna is expanding from one to three D.C. public middle schools, and the program's starting to catch national attention. The other cool thing that happened was Cory Booker, this mayor of Newark, New Jersey, did SNAP, like $27 for a week. SNAP, of course, is the program known to many people as food stamps. During that week, Ali Sosna wrote an op-ed for Huffington Post with advice for Mayor Booker on how to stretch that money out. His office saw it and reached out. And he retweeted and he got excited about it. He read it and his office contacted me about doing microgreens in, in their city for spring. Sosna will kick off the Newark program herself and rely on volunteer fellows to lead the program in D.C., By next fall, she expects to be in Pennsylvania and Delaware as well. The students put their knives down as the competition comes to a close. Sasna has asked Chef Nate Anda of the soon-to-be-opened Red Apron Butchery to come in and choose the winner of each category. The winners each get a big prize, a set of knives or a pizza stone. And after the cooking is wrapped up, they all get a big bowl full of stir-fry to eat. Darrell Chase is digging into the steamed veggies, brown rice, and baked chicken. It's pretty good, in my opinion. And with reviews like that, Ali Sasna is hoping this culinary crash course will be enough to kickstart a lifetime of smart shopping and healthy eating. I'm Emily Berman. To read Ali Sosna's article, The Top 10 Ingredients for a Healthy Snap Diet, and to learn more about microgreens, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story is about the people who grow some of the nice, fresh produce that Ali Sosna likes to cook and the challenges those people face from a certain invasive critter, the stink bug. These pesky, smelly intruders are notorious for turning up everywhere in your house, from the laundry hamper to the curtains. For years, they've been the bane of many a local farmer's existence. Sabri Benashore reported on the problem back in 2011 and brings us this update. A year and a half ago, Bob Black was not in a good place. This thing is really going to put a big chapter in my book of life. I've never had anything affect me like this. Black runs Catoctin Mountain Orchards in Thurmont, Maryland, and like farmers across the region, he was being assaulted by brown, marmorated stink bugs. They're invasive beetles from Asia, beetles that disfigure crops by piercing the flesh of fruits and vegetables with their long, needle-like mouthpieces. One of my late varieties, Pink Lady, which a lot of people like, that's the latest apple, we had up to 50% damage on that. I can handle a few percent, but, uh, you know, it gets up to 25 to 50%. That's, that's pretty devastating for me. This year has been better, but... Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, they're still around here, and um, we do have some damage again, but nothing like the 2010, which I I never want to go through that again. But we had a big apple crop, so we were able to, I guess you could say, uh, it made up for a little bit of a loss we had. Black has found some pesticides that work, but they require regular spraying and constant vigilance. Stink bug attacks are impossible to predict because the creatures can come out of nowhere, lying in wait in a neighbor's field or some woods up on the mountainside. Black says one time he was saved just by luck after his neighbor cleared a wheat field where swarms were hiding. 
planting. When they combined the wheat, one of the field folks called me immediately and says, Bob, I'm not sure what happened here, but your count went up to 300. And it had been at 20. And luckily, I happened to be spraying uh, over that weekend. And that's really one of the big problems with these bugs. They can do massive damage. The population is enormous. And they can come out of nowhere because they can survive everywhere. In 2010, growers lost $37 million to insect damage to apples alone. And while 2012 was horrible for a few farmers, overall, it hasn't been so bad. But that's little comfort because nobody is entirely sure why. Chris Berg is an entomologist at Virginia Tech. For some reason that we don't fully understand, there was high nymphal mortality in the fall of 2011. And so that translated into fewer adult bugs in spring 2012. Basically, a bunch of bugs mysteriously died in 2011. But if that meant 2012 was an off year, 2013 looks like it'll be a big one. Tracy Lesky is an entomologist with the U.S. Agricultural Research Service. Those populations have essentially recovered, and we're seeing populations that are about six times larger than they were the previous year. One of the most anticipated lines of research has been going on in an Agricultural Research Service lab in Newark, Delaware. Use this uh, special electronic key to go in. When we visited Kim Homer's lab in the spring of 2011, he was trying to figure out if it was safe to introduce an Asian parasitoid wasp into the U.S. to attack brown marmorated stink bugs, basically to reunite the stink bug with its ancient evolutionary nemesis. These small wasps will deposit their eggs inside the stink bug eggs, and then the parasite egg hatches, and its immature stage feeds on the inside of the stink bug egg. The tiny, non-stinging Trisulcus wasps had evolved in Asia to like brown marmorated stink bugs and only brown marmorated stink bugs. In fact, it had evolved to depend on them. If they can't find stink bug eggs to lay their own eggs in, they'll die. They can't survive on anything else. But Homer needs to make sure of that because there are 300 species of native stink bugs, some of which are good for us because they eat pests. So he basically locks the wasps in a container with native stink bugs and watches to see, does the wasp attack them? We've been through about 20 species of non-target stink bugs in North America, 30 actually, and about half of them are unambiguous. The Chinese trisulcus that we've been testing will not attack the native stink bugs in those cases. So we know that there will be no impact against those. In the other ones, we do see some sign of attack. It doesn't mean that the level of attack is the same. So Homer's doing more tests. He and his colleagues have 14 new species of Chinese wasp they're going to look at in search of the ones that might be a perfect match for the invasive stink bug. At the earliest, Homer might get clearance to start releasing approved wasps next fall. Meanwhile, farmers across the Mid-Atlantic are gearing up for a big year of war with airborne armies of stink bugs in their fields. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Up next, we'll kick back in Ward 8's living room as part of our monthly series, DC Dives. Through all of those years of strife elsewhere, it has never lost the friendliness. It's never lost the appeal of being a friendly neighborhood bar. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling today's show Follow-Ups. Basically, we're taking a handful of Metro Connection stories from the past year or so and doing a sort of where-are-they-now thing. To kick off this part of the show, we'll follow up on a story we did about two children in Virginia, Oliver and Waverly McNeil. In 2008, the siblings were diagnosed with mucopolysaccharidosis, or MPS3. The degenerative disease shows up in one of every 24,000 births. Kids who have MPS3 lack the enzyme that breaks down natural sugars in the body. It's essentially like the city if the sanitation workers went on strike. There's nothing to take the garbage out, so it just piles up. That's Oliver and Waverly's father, Matt McNeil. You may remember him as the author of The Strange Tale of Ben Beasley, a young adult novel inspired by his kids. Anyway, as Matt knows so well... All that garbage he talks about damages the cells and brain and eventually leads to death. We first spoke with the McNeils in May at a playground for children with special needs. Waverly was eight, and while she couldn't talk, she could walk, though she was often in a wheelchair. Oliver was five, and though he wasn't talking either, he was darting and dashing all over the place. But when I see him again around five o'clock on a recent Monday evening... I'm just going to quickly show you Kathy's camp, which is another sleeping area. The little guy is in a far chiller mood. And this little guy over here is Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver is sitting on the floor, flipping the pages of a picture book. He and Waverly are spending the night at Jill's house, a facility in Fairfax, Virginia, which provides overnight stays and day camps for children and teens with intellectual disabilities. Sheila Joy is the director of Advancement. So this is just a time where um, they will just sit and kind of relax and watch a movie and just chill out. The 42,000-square-foot building was built in 2010 with a two-fold purpose. One, to give kids with intellectual disabilities an adventure away from home. And two, to give the parents of these kids a break at home. It's so funny because we're sitting here in this this beautiful room in the middle of Jill's house and staff members keep walking by and saying, you two shouldn't be here. This is your chance to have a respite. Why are you here? Yeah, we feel guilty. We're apparently doing it wrong. (laughs) But Um, seriously, says Matt McNeil, Jill's house has been a godsend for him and his wife, Shannon. The first time we came here to drop Waverly off, I actually got very teary-eyed. You know, they have a bunch of stones that people have donated out front that are engraved, and one of them says... Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And not just for us, but I think for all the parents who come here who are dealing with kids who have significant special needs. It makes it difficult to hold a regular job, to keep a social life, and for a weekend or a night, they can know that their kids are cared for and and get some rest. This past summer, Matt and Shannon were finding it difficult to get any rest at all, as it got more and more difficult for Waverly to swallow. She was actually at risk of choking on the pureed table foods we were giving her, applesauce and yogurts. So every spoonful was filled with dread and panic. And I hear her coughing at night, then I get out of bed a lot to go make sure she's okay, because I don't think that I would hear her if she actually choked on something. So at the end of August, Waverly's doctors put in a feeding tube. They put a little button, sort of a port that goes right into her stomach, and now she's on a liquid diet. Um, She was losing a lot of weight, and now she's sort of stabilized and actually gained weight. We actually had to curb her intake to slow her down. I can only lift so much, and she was getting close to the outer limit. Oliver, who will be six on December 30th, can still feed himself, but Shannon says he's been having trouble moving around. We are moving into orthotics for him now. He's just starting to stumble. Feet are turning in and falling occasionally, which is confusing for him. 
Um, so hopefully that will help straighten his feet, keep him walking and mobile for longer. Thing is, it isn't just Oliver's physical development that's sliding. Over the past year or so, he's lost about seven months of cognitive development, which is significant, yet within like the trajectory of the disease. So he's right now, I think they have him on about a 17 month old developmental age. Where's Weaverly right now? Where does she fall? I think the last time we had her assessed, she was right around the 12 to 13 month range. So typically I always tell people when they're interacting with her, you know, think of her as like a one-year-old and that's what she's able to really understand and how she'll best respond. Waverly turned nine on November 30th. And though the family celebrated over milkshakes at their favorite diner, Shannon says this birthday was not easy. When you get the diagnosis, they tell you like 10 seems to be the date, like the early date of average life expectancy. So nine just felt, I don't know, what's the word yeah. I'm looking for? No, it was, it was, it came with more of a, a sense of dread. Yeah. It, it was dreadful in a way. And celebrating this Christmas feels especially hard too. I just am starting to get that feeling of, is this my last Christmas with her? So, like, I hung twinkling lights everywhere because she just loves to look at them. And our house looks a little crazy, but that's what makes her happy. And I'm just trying to create as many moments and memories as we can. That's why the McNeils are planning a trip to Disney World right after New Year's. And why they recently brought home a golden retriever puppy they hope to train as a therapy dog. Shannon says Watson is great with Waverly. She um, loves to put her feet in his fur. And he tolerates it. And he follows Oliver around everywhere he goes. I think Oliver of the four of us is the least interested in him. And Watson seems to think Oliver is his favorite. (laughs) In fact, the gentle, playful pup has brought comfort to all of their lives. As, of course, have evenings like this. So what are you going to do with your free time? Other than do a radio interview with me. (laughs) Talk to Rebecca was the first on our list. (laughs) That's right. We're going to see what we feel like eating. Yeah. You're going to hang some pictures. Uh, Yeah, really exciting stuff, you know. But what they're most looking forward to, Shannon says, after four odd years of laboring and toiling with MPS3, is that increasingly rare luxury. I can't wait to sleep. I'm so excited to just (laughs) go to bed and sleep. Yeah. As long as the puppy doesn't wake us up. (laughs) And tomorrow, once they're all rested and refreshed, the McNeils will get together again, ready to face and cherish another day. To read more about MPS3 and to find information on Matt McNeil's book, The Strange Tale of Ben Beasley, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And now it's time for Bookend. Our monthly conversation about the Washington area's literary scene. To close out the year, we thought we'd do something a little bit different and turn from authors to critics. In this case, Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Durda of the Washington Post and the New York Review of Books. Jonathan Wilson talked with the so-called best-read man in America about what he reads on a cold winter's night. 
and how he suggests we might bust out of our literary comfort zone. So when you were majoring English and then going to grad school for comparative literature, you were I imagine, you know, thinking of, you know, my career will be as a professor. Before you started writing reviews, had you thought about that as a possibility? Never. Uh, I didn't work for any newspapers in uh, well, in college. I never worked for any newspaper before the Washington Post. And I, I read the reviews and I studied them and um, figured out how I thought it was done and then started practicing. So I've always liked the easygoing colloquial style. I like the kind of reviewer who is essentially a fellow reader, an enthusiast, a fan. You know, I th- you know I think you know here's something I've read that's and here's why I, I think it's fun and I, why I like it. Here's some quotes give you a sense of what it's like. And if you know if this sounds you know something like uh, the kind of book you would like, give it a try. This is basically my attitude, along with urging people to read beyond the bestseller lists to read beyond genre barriers, boundaries, to, uh, to explore the literature of the past as well as just the literature of right now. Are you able to read strictly for pleasure? I mean, when was the last time you were able to read a book knowing, I do not have to write about this book? Or is that something that you do? Oh, I haven't read for pleasure in 35 years. Um, I mean, I get a lot of pleasure from what I read. But for the, there were there were a few years when I would read um, Christmas time, and you know I would have a break, a holiday, and I would read uh, John Dixon Carr's Locked Room Mysteries. I read one or two every year for several years. I've, I'm very fond of Golden Age mysteries, the classic whodunit puzzles. But even in that case, after I'd read a half a dozen of them, uh, f- uh, friends of mine, Robin Winks and uh, Maureen Corrigan, were doing a big book on crime writers. And so I ended up writing a six or 7,000 word essay on the novels of John Dixon Carr. So even that pleasure reading was ultimately used for work. For me, it somehow it does, it's gotten so that it doesn't seem as though I've read a book unless I've written about it. It really seems the completion of the reading process. I'd love to hear some of the best things that you've read recently, whether it be just, just from this year or, or even, as you've pointed out, you love to read books from the past that maybe have gone underappreciated. Could you give our listeners a few recommendations? Well, if you, if you follow me on, in any of the places I write, you'll see I've, I've written about all kinds of books. But my own most recent book was a book about Arthur Conan Doyle, called On Conan Doyle, that won the Edgar Award this past year in which I urge people to read things beyond Sherlock Holmes. But I also urge them, if they've never read Sherlock Holmes stories, if they've only seen Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch as Holmes, the stories are wonderful. Um, And Conan Doyle himself is a terrific writer. Just last week in the Post, I reviewed a, a, a superb biography of the painter Titian by Sheila Hale. But my, my, my urge at Christmas time or Hanukkah time or Kwanzaa time is that people go to bookstores, that they walk around bookstores and look at the shelves, go to look for authors that they have loved in the past and see what else those authors have written, look what other books are similar to that, actually physically encounter the books. Not only even new books, you go use bookshops. Or I suppose you, you can do some of this online, but do not just go with what everyone is reading. You know that it always annoys me when you know, when certain books become the book, and everybody in the world gives you know the Da Vinci Code for a, a gift. When when there are such there are many better books of that sort even than the Da Vinci Code. People need to to make 
choosing their books a pleasure. What would you know better than to go spend an afternoon at um, you know politics and prose or second story books or or even the Barnes and Noble outlets, however you feel about Barnes and Noble, and at least they're a physical presence in in your city, and they they do uh, provide a chance to look at the books, and so that's what I think is important. All right. Well, Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Durda, thank you for joining us, and happy holidays. Thank you, Jonathan. To hear Jonathan Wilson's entire interview with Washington Post book critic Michael Durda, and to learn why Durda is still resisting getting an e-reader, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We conclude today's show with one of our favorite series of 2012, DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This time around, we'll head to a place that may have one of the best voicemail messages in the city. Catering, today's menu, filet catfish, filet trout, bacon fried chicken, jerk and curry chicken, crab cake, tasmo, liver and onion, wingette. That's what you'll hear when you call the Players' Lounge, a southeast D.C. spot that local residents say is more than just a bar. Jared Walker takes us there. It's Oldies R&B and Soul Music Night at Players' Lounge, a restaurant and bar so ingrained in the Congress Heights neighborhood of Southeast D.C. that Washington City Paper once described it as Ward 8's living room. And while Players is now the go-to meeting place for residents in this corner of the city, tonight's DJ, Wayne Hartridge, a.k.a. DJ Ultramix, says it wasn't always so friendly. I heard a story that this was a strip club when it first opened. I was actually the DJ when it was a strip club. <laughs> you were the strip club DJ. Yeah. <laughs> so you've seen it change. Over I've the seen years. it change over how, the years. How has it changed? It went from negative to positive. Let's put it like that. The clientele, the clientele, everything is a complete turnaround. And imagine the strip club environment in the '80s at the start of the crack epidemic and the whole nine yards, and it just made a complete turnaround. And that's why it's still here. The architects of that turnaround were owners Steve and Georgine Thompson. The Thompsons got rid of the dancers and put the focus on the soul food and drinks. After a brief drop in business, the customers began flocking to players and haven't stopped coming since. Georgine thinks the laid-back nature of the place is a big draw for folks. We don't ask them to dress up or nothing like that. You just come the way you feel, you know, just like as long as you have clothes on. That's it. And they really like that. Georgine's daughter and bar manager, Angie Thompson-Hines, agrees. But she goes a step further. We treat them right. We treat them like as if they're they're all family. This, I mean, that's why they keep coming and coming and coming. And the bar really is a family affair. Most of us are all family that uh, work behind the bar. Really, how many family members do you have working here? It's um, me, Josephine, my husband, uh, Michael, who's in the kitchen, which is my brother, 
my mother, my father helps out every now and then. My son, who's 22 years old now, and he runs it at night. DJ Wayne Hartridge says Players is more than just a place to have a beer. The owners really take care of the community. And Stephen Jodine, you know, they emphasize that. And that pride and respect for the community has rubbed off on those around them. Wayne's a member of the Fat Boys, a social club and sort of service fraternity associated with the bar. Can you tell, tell me what the Fat Boys are? Started out as a club that was about having fun. And then it just got to be community oriented. We just fed 150 people for Thanksgiving. As you see, we got a toy drive going on this Saturday toy and coat drive so you know we we're a community-based club beyond the good deeds this place means a lot to regulars like nick johnson a radio dj at local station wpfw he remembers the dark days when players lounge was a refuge and the only sit-down restaurant in ward eight i grew up in this part of the city I saw this part of the city go through the riots of 1968. I saw this part of the city become desolate, become burned down shells in almost every other building. Although Nick says he's seen progress in the past decade with the arrival of new restaurants and bars, he remains loyal to players for one simple reason. They have not let this establishment become part of the blight of the city. Through all of those years of strife elsewhere, it has never lost the friendliness. It's never lost the appeal of being a friendly neighborhood bar. Tonight, as I sit in the corner listening to R&B classics, folks are talking, laughing, and watching football as the smell of fried food floats through the air. This really could be anyone's living room in America. I'm Jared Walker. You can see photos of the Players' Lounge on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have a favorite dive bar you think we should visit, send an email to metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at wamumetro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Emily Berman, Sabri Benashore, Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Landau, and Jared Walker. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rachel Schuster. Lauren Landau, Rachel Schuster, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our year in review. We'll revisit a story about young Washingtonians living with HIV and visit the monks of Holy Cross Abbey. Plus, we'll spend some more time with alley cats and the people who love them. I'm quite sure I've made ruffled a little bit of feathers around here, but I can't worry about that because I'm the one who fed them. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.